Hello and welcome to the Radical Reformers podcast. I'm Andrew Laird. This podcast is for people who want to understand what it really takes to make a positive impact in public services. It features leaders from councils, the NHS, central government, charities and social enterprises, as well as think tanks and social investors. This is about policy and the implementation of policy and the grit and determination it takes to run successful public services. It's not about politics. Politics does not feature at all and the discussions are all the better for it. It's also about the stories and personal journeys of the leaders I speak to, the challenges they faced and the lessons they've learned. Running and reforming public services is incredibly difficult and I'm very grateful to these inspiring leaders for taking the time to share with others. So before we get into it, I just want to take a second to thank my friends and colleagues at Mutual Ventures for supporting me to do this podcast. My day job at Mutual Ventures is about supporting public services to be better, more sustainable and more connected to communities. This means working with central government departments to help them build bridges between policy development and local implementation. It means working with councils to help them plan for the future. And it also means working with NHS trusts to help them find their place in the new health and care system. So I hope you enjoy this podcast and that you get as much from it as I have. And don't forget to subscribe on the website or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter to make sure that you never miss a future episode. And you might even want to go back and listen to some of the older ones. This episode is a wide-ranging and captivating discussion with Marion Ridley, the former Chief Executive of the Evelina London Children's Hospital. Marion is a thoughtful and quietly inspiring leader, and there are a lot of more generally applicable ideas which emerge from this episode that people from across public services will get a lot from. We talk about the changing health needs of the UK population since the NHS was founded and how this is challenging the current NHS model. We also discuss the balance between management and clinical delivery within the NHS and how perceived wisdom of there being too much management, inverted commas, is wrong. Marion has some insightful thoughts on the role of place leads in the new ICS model their role as conveners and the ability of local leaders to make their own prioritisation decisions regarding health and care activity. Local place leads are often council chief execs who should be well placed to appreciate and influence the wider determinants of health and the full range of available local assets. Marion and I also discuss whether NHS organisations have the capability to become local anchor institutions. So doing much more than just providing health care for a local population, acting as an economic centre, supporting local supply chains, employing locally, that type of thing. Finally, we discussed the critically important but often heartbreaking job of caring for seriously ill children and the difficult decisions which professionals and families have to make. And if anybody has watched the recent BBC drama Best Interests, then you will know exactly what we're talking about there. So let's hear from Marion. Marion, it's great to see you. I think it's probably been about a month since we spoke last, just to to let listeners know we're we're talking in the middle of, of our June heat wave at the minute. So everyone is struggling a little bit with the heat. But how, how have you been? I've been good, thank you. Um yes, I took the precaution of heading up to Orkney for a, a week nice. last week, which was blissfully sunny. Oh, um, but not too hot. But so not hot. Recommend yeah. that. <laughs> that's a really, that's a really nice idea. So, just for people who are listening who might not know who you are, could you just say a little bit about yourself? Thanks, Andrew. And it's lovely to have this sort of chat. I've listened in awe to a number of your podcasts, and um, uh, yeah, it's great to have the chance to record one too. So, um, in terms of my background, um, I'm someone who spent 35 years as a career NHS manager. And like so many NHS managers, I started off as a trainee, um, although in my case, rather unusually, I started off in a, what was then called a community unit. Generally, trainees start off in acute hospitals. But in my case, they they paid me to work amidst the beauty of the Cotswolds and the Forest of Dean in rural Gloucestershire, which is a girl from 
Croydon was was just fabulous. Yeah. Um, and I then spent um, a few years working my way through a number of different roles in hospital management in commissioning. And I even did a, a um, spell as a civil servant. Um, but I've spent the last two decades at Guys and St. Thomas's, which is one of the largest NHS provider organisations. Um, it's not just a hospital provider. It provides community services as well. Um, and, and back in 2013, I moved from being the director of strategy to a, a newly created CEO role that, that we designed to bring all our specialist hospital and our community services for children together and, and to grow the Evelina London Children's Hospital yeah. and also to pioneer a more devolved operating model for the trust. And essentially, there were sort of two ideas at the heart of that. Firstly, that the trust had a lot of really great assets and children's services and that if we brought them together effectively and then worked with both local partners and partners across the south of England and and indeed with sort of university partners, we could have a more positive impact upon children's health and upon their experience. And, and the second idea was that putting senior leadership closer to the front line, um, yeah, focusing them on yeah. a population group, giving them a bit more autonomy was a really a much better way of making things happen than trying to control everything from trust headquarters in a very large organisation. Um, and then in 2020, we added women's services in. And I think uh, overall, although there's obviously the job is never done, great team in place um, and my success is now in place and there's more to be done. It, it worked on both fronts and Evelyn yeah. London's now more widely recognised as a leader in child health yeah. and the rest of guys in St Thomas's has um, operated, now operates on the same devolved model. So we, it guess, was a pioneer sort of model? It was an experiment. I love yeah. being a guinea pig. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I guess, I mean, about me personally, I'm... Um, I, I come from a family where public service has been the norm, mostly yeah. in education. It has to be said, I'm the first of my family to have ventured into health, mother of three young people. And, and I think those also kind of affected why, for me, children's services sort of felt like home. Yeah. Really interesting. Really interesting. And just re reflecting on something you said right at the start, that you were have essentially been a career NHS manager. I want, I want to just ask you a little bit about that because I've been reading some research from places like the Reform Think Tank that are saying we don't have enough managers in the NHS anymore. And it's really interesting because the kind of accepted wisdom for years has been, oh, there are too many managers. But when people are now looking and seeing additional funding going into the NHS, but not additional productivity, this the think tank reform is saying there are not enough expert managers managing resources. What What's your thoughts on well, that? Well, spot on. Um, I mean, the so-called wisdom that the NHS is overmanaged is is frankly a load of twaddle yeah. that, that people spout for sort of obvious reasons. It's a good headline. Yeah. You know, I could get onto a soapbox about this, but I won't other than to say, it's a tough gig being an NHS manager, sitting in a pub with your mates saying, what do you do? I have always been lucky enough to work as, you know, very close colleagues with clinical staff who completely get the need for managerial skills as part of yeah. the mix in the team um, and, and who value that. And I think... For those of us that have been in the business for as long as I have, just that sort of intrinsic sense of the positive impact that you can have as a good manager and, yeah. and that knowing why you're getting out of bed in the morning um, has always been enough for me to um, put up with the occasional annoying red top headline. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, but it I, it, it's definitely right. I, I think it is right because, you know, clinicians are good at what they do and look I'm I'm going to say this and not would never ask you to say this but we do work with GPs sometimes and they quite often are the managers also and I, I, I'm not sure their skill set is always suited to that I'll just leave it at that but no I'm I'm totally convinced by this and I'm really glad that some 
important influential think tanks are now saying saying that and just trying to connect that lack of management capacity and skill with the fact that we have seen increases in budgets but not necessarily the resulting increases in in activity even so um really really good to get your thoughts on that so if, i want to take us up up a bit and look more strategically and think about the nhs as part of a wider system of public services so the new ics structures will in in your view and from your experience will they enable the nhs to better integrate and collaborate with other services um so short answer is i sincerely hope so yeah. Um, I mean, in reality, those those GPs you just referred to have always been part of a wider system of, of public services. You know, our, our health visitors too, I would have called out, um, particularly when it comes to services for local communities. Um, even if that wasn't something that's ever had much attention at national level or kind of more general recognition. I mean, to me, that ICS is sort of feel like the latest evolution of, sort of the NHS grappling with a number of number of realities. There's, there's the big thing about the historic sort of paradigm of the NHS, you know, as with many public services, it's got its roots in sort of 20th century and mid 20th century beverage, Bevan. It's just not fit for the 21st century. It's, you yeah. know, we're, we're not anymore in the business of sort of episodic response to occasional downturns in people's lives. Um, yeah. I, I think the next thing is, you know, recognition of, just as you said, the extent that the NHS is just one player of many when it comes to protecting and improving the health of populations. And, you know, when it comes to addressing the scale and multiple dimensions of health inequity and the damage that that causes both to individuals and society. And then yeah. I think finally, and something that one, one neglect at one's peril is that the, the NHS is in itself both one organisation and many. It's not a single thing, even though, you know, our national religion says it is a single thing. And, and so integration and collaboration <laughs> just amongst the various bits of the NHS is today work in progress. Um, I mean, we're sort of we're kind of in the foothold hills, I think, bit soon to make any sort of a call. Um, yeah. Got to travel and hope. Um, definitely got the potential to be positive. I, I I think it's great that um, the idea of horizontal relationships being as important as the vertical relationships, possibly even whisper it more important than the vertical yeah. relationships that the NHS is always kind of oriented around. It, that does seem to be finally getting a bit of traction in the provider world. We've we've got provider collaboratives emerging, um, although again, I think for me that's a bit of a juries out on well what really is their purpose yeah. um i mean and, is and their purpose is is their purpose to make life easier for the ics as a ultimate commissioner for it's not going to work if that is the purpose because yeah. um so many providers cross ics yeah boundaries um i mean i think the the nhs its muscle memory is all about reorganizing structures. Yeah. That's what we do. And inevitably, the creation of both ICSs and provider collaboratives has been going through a phase in, in which there's been quite a lot of focus on governance structures and people sitting in meetings talking yeah. about governance structures and and actually it's not really structures that make things work is it it's tr strong trusting relationships and aligned interests and um our hours spent in online meetings don't actually contribute much towards trusting relationships um might help elucidate a bit of the aligned interests structures have to be an enabler you get them wrong relationships get more tricky than they should be um, yeah, I completely agree. I, I, I completely agree. So you, you mentioned horizontal relationships there. Part of the new NHS structure is this idea of places and having place leads. Is that 
a kind of a manifestation of that? Is that a key manifestation of that? Because the place leads are quite often council chief execs mm-hmm. that we talked about um, how, or you talked about, I should say, how the NHS only controls a very limited amount of levers, if you want to call it that way, for the wider determinants of health. Obviously, councils hold a lot more of them, in my view. So that that place structure, is that a key thing? And getting that to work, is that yeah. critical? Yeah, it is. I think place leads have got such an interesting role, haven't they? Because they're sitting at the kind of crossing point between the horizontal and the vertical axes of ICSs. They've got to look both ways. It, it's it's not an either or job. It's a both and job. And that's, um, you know, they're going to bring a unique perspective that in itself is sort of a lever um, because you can see both horizontally across the ICS and yeah. um, vertically down into your place and and played well. Place leads should own levers both horizontally and vertically. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think there's all sorts of interesting levers that they they have at their disposal. I mean, not necessarily the kind of historical levers of performance management or even market levers, which um, many councils have used yeah. successfully. Um, seems to me that sort of at the heart of it, it's got to be about the effective use of the place leads convening power. Yeah. To just build that agreement about what matters rather than what is the matter. Yeah. I think a lot of ICSs, again, it's back to this muscle memory thing of, you know, you're constructing a narrative of what is the matter framed in financial terms. Place leads are the people who can talk about what what matters and can bring that deep understanding of local assets and a set of relationships that gives you some chance of effectively mobilising those local assets. And that, that strikes to me, me as something that local authorities know infinitely more about than um, the NHS has historically and have got um, yeah. lived experience in, in that space. Yes. Um, do you do you think that there is a conflict between NHS England driven priorities that are being demanded of NHS services and the expectation of NHS providers to play a bigger place role and think about local supply chains, think about how the NHS assets that it has, be it buildings, whatever, could be better used to support local enterprise or all sorts of things you know is there a is there a conflict there is there a question mark around what the purpose of the nhs locally is is it still just to provide healthcare or is it is it is it is it right to expect it to be more of a anchor institution for a community more broadly yeah so i i don't think that there's a conflict i don't think the problem is one of conflict i think the problem is one of bandwidth and and I think particularly for big organisations, so as someone who's come from this sort of, you know, what many will think of as an ivory tower institution or the kind of evil gobbling acute sector that's scoffing all the growth every year. Um, so your words, your words, not mine. <laughs> it's about bandwidth. Um, I, I, I can't speak for anything other than my own kind of personal experience and observation, there is no lack of both intellectual understanding of and kind of emotional desire to act as anchor institutions to do all that you're describing. The problem is bandwidth because you are also having to do so many other things. And it's not just about management bandwidth, although that is yeah. The question about what's an appropriate level of management. Um, it's it, it's about many other groups of staff too. But this seems to be so. You're right. Bandwidth is is an issue when staff NHS staff are trying to deal with business as usual. But I suppose if they don't find the band, bandwidth for it, then the prevention agenda is not properly supported, and therefore yeah. demand stays where it is. 
but but for me that comes back to the potential of place leads convening power using storytelling as a lever we've got to start telling different sorts of stories we all kind of know it don't we that the system's broken and we keep repeating policy paper after policy paper that we've got to move towards a more kind of preventative model and then saying well we'll do that later because right now we've got to go put that this particular fire out yeah um and and I I used to reckon that one of the things that made me effective as someone who was notionally in leading an operational delivery unit was that with a background as a strategy director, my instinct was always to play the long game. And that's not historically the environment which the NHS has been able to work. But but if we have more voices from across the broader system talking about playing the long game, clinicians get it, managers get it. We've yeah. just got to get to that tipping point. I love the idea of Rebel Alliance. I think that was Donna Hall's oh, yeah. idea. Oh, yeah, yeah, Donna Hall's thing. Yeah. Um, oh, no, I, I love it. I love it. I, I, I think it's the Stronger yeah. Things Conference. But, yeah. but it, it strikes me it's got to be a bit of, you know, forming a few Rebel Alliances and just hanging on to those stories, just sort of See, building the, the successes. The cri- yeah, the, the critical recruits to rebel alliance will be people like in the role that you were in chief execs of acute services if we if the rebel alliance can recruit some of those leaders who in star wars parlance might be seen as as more part of the empire than than the rebel alliance then we're onto something there for sure so that that's really interesting i'm really glad that you brought up the Rebel Alliance because it, it's catching fire, I think, and it, it it should be really interesting to see if anything if anything comes off it. If people can form those groups of change makers and agitators, and it'll be fantastic. Um, the last time we spoke, and this is probably linked to this, you talked about the struggle for the soul of ICSs, which I find really interesting. Can you just tell people what what you meant by that? So uh, at, at the risk of falling into the trap that I generally try not to fall into and frame something as an either or when it's actually a uh, a more complicated both and, I think probably yeah. a couple of things. Um, firstly, the, the degree to which ICS teams are in practice expected to be sort of enforcers and performance managers of relatively detailed national agendas in relation to health services delivery. Um, and to be honest, my provider prejudice says they're not necessarily particularly well equipped to do those things. Mm. Um, but it's it's sort of one of the articles of our national religion, isn't it? it it's that in, in the NHS, we believe that quality is best managed centrally. And, you know, that sound of Bevan's dropped bedpan in award in Wales is still reverberating around the Palace of Westminster. You know, that's a concept that's alive and well and all too often making things harder, not easier. So that was the first thing I meant. And then the second thing is the sort of question of the extent to which local variation will be allowed to yeah. flourish. Because, again, you know, even if the spirit is willing, you know, people get it intellectually and emotionally, the flesh may be weak because of another of the articles of faith in our national religion that provision has got to be the same wherever you live even though it patently isn't and and communities patently aren't the same um but you can't you oversimplify if you say it's an either or clearly the nhs is a set of taxpayer funded services it's not a religion um we do need intelligent accountability systems for services that are spending an ever-increasing amount of taxpayers money and central powers of intervention are going to have to exist um, yeah. and the, there's all sorts of things where I think you know clearly things should be done at a national level but that, it, that I think yeah. is no I, I think that was well explained and I think that there is a lot of variation so there are some places like you know Rob Webster's patch in West Yorkshire that are doing things their own way and are doing things differently and are are trying to to plan and allocate resources based on their specific challenges and needs. And then there are definitely other ICSs that are just, that are, I don't want to 
you know, it's it's hard enough, but just kind of ticking the boxes with regards to this new structure and haven't actually embraced the opportunity of it. So I think what you're saying is, is really is really pertinent. But the other thing just is this whole idea of the NHS as as a religion. I mean, you've got, you know, I don't know if you've seen any of the pictures from uh, Glastonbury where they've got just in front of the pyramid stage, they've got this huge imprint on the grass where people will eventually stand saying we it's either we support or we love the nhs or something and it's kind of you're right it's a it's a taxpayer funded public service and it cannot be perfect it cannot be on a pedestal it can't it has to be challenged for its own good and its own sustainability and i just i I worry about that as well just that it is it's seen as something to rally around as in almost a way to kind of we criticise the government almost off of the day. You know, let's just say that this is our our big thing. So I'm I'm going down a road I, I, de- I didn't necessarily want to go down, but there's something there. I think without I don't think we need to talk any more about it. But there is definitely something there about this being a taxpayer funded service, and it needs to be held held accountable accordingly. So let's move on from the NHS as as a system and get into your area of speciality. So um, as as the former chief exec, you'll have spent a lot of time thinking about how to bring the voice of your patients, and in your case, it's particularly children, into the thinking and planning and strategic planning of the service. So how, how did you go about that? Because this is this is obviously a, a group of, of patients that you, you, you maybe just can't use the normal ways of engaging with. Yeah. So, I mean, I would say one of the joys of working at Evelyn London was particularly at the level of caring for individual child you know, in their family context. I was constantly being reminded of the extent to which staff, both clinical and non-clinical, managed to keep this, their voice, the child's voice front and centre in their minds, no matter what. And, you know, I think making a positive difference and being ambitious for children is why they come to work. And you know, as yeah. it is for people working in children's services up and down the land. I mean, I could talk about all sorts of the mechanisms we used, surveys, age-appropriate surveys, surveys for parents, informal and semi-formal engagement mechanisms, using play with parents. Using play using play is an interesting one. That's obviously a lot of what you said there you could do with adults, but using play is is a yeah. very child-specific one, maybe. <laughs> Patient stories in meetings, parent voice at board level, uh, use case, all, all of this, it's, it's tailoring of yeah. the standard mechanisms. We used to run a, until COVID hit, a takeover day, kind of combination of kids from a local secondary school to give us one set of perspectives, you know, for whom interaction with the health service is a minor thing. Um, but of course, we used to run school nursing services. And on the other hand, a group of, very articulate care experienced children who so many children who are served by the relatively limited number of comprehensive children's hospitals in in England have lived all their lives with their condition and they are such experts in it and um, engaging with them um, watching how they prioritize um, was always eye-opening but I, I would have to say it was an area where I still felt we were a long, a long way from, um, with some, with some honourable exceptions, something that was recognisable co-design of services and, or anything that looked like a sort of participatory process for setting priorities. Um, that was an area where I think we had at least started to understand that local authorities and the voluntary sector were streets ahead and we should just try and piggyback on what they had done and were doing and how they knew how to do it rather than attempt to invent it ourselves. Um, And I don't think we were unique in in that. I mean, I I have so many soapboxes I could get onto about (laughs) the NHS's repeated failure to ask to overlook the distinct needs of children and to just ask the, you know, how does this, might this, would this work for children? And, and if it does happen too often, it's an add on. So, you know, for example, I'm thinking about how do you prioritise 
Waiting lists, um, general approach to prioritisation and target setting that's applied across all ages gives insufficient weight to, well, no weight to thinking about short and long term developmental harms, um, yeah. which, of course, for children is is huge. 52 weeks waiting for an adult is is a bad thing. 52 weeks waiting if you are a child in a reception class. That's yeah. 20% of your life. You're affecting yeah. the entire foundation of their their schooling. It's, you know, remember how long time, three terms is is a lifetime when you're it, four it or five. It used to be like a lifetime, yeah. It really and, does. And, you know, that's 365 sleeps. We've got to sort of think about it in a child's terms. It's a yeah. very, very, very bad thing to have to wait that long. And And yet we use the same way of thinking about it as that adult um, yeah. so I think I mean I think there's again it's another one where the kind of spirit's willing but the flesh is weak there's widespread recognition of the sort of combined impact of the pandemic and you know the, the decade of austerity upon children and young people you can sort of hear it at every school gate see it in every children's outpatient service and and you know there's a lot out there in terms of policy influencers policy makers even legislators talking about it it's about what you're going to do about it and it's another area where i think vertical um, horizontal collaboration is is effective so if i if i think about what the children's hospitals alliance did which is a sort of very informal club for the 10 or so comprehensive children's hospitals in england in the immediate aftermath of the pandemic they did terrific work on getting attention and response to the sort of issues I've talked about around waiting lists and waiting times, making sure that although initially forgotten, children's waiting lists were then at least added back into the mix and thought about yeah. distinctly. Um, and there's all sorts of voluntary and um, charitable and, and even professional organisations. I mean, I think the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health deserves a shout out for going way beyond the traditional remit of speaking for a profession on professional issues and and speaking about you know and advocating on issues like poverty air quality on the health of the future generations which we're all going to depend on aren't we um it's that that health 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 of children as a national asset that needs investing in and the return on that investment back to the same themes we've been talking about earlier Really interesting. Thank you. I was just wondering, do you do you think or do you know, do local systems, local hospitals, do they have the ability to do their own prioritisation? Because I, I keep using Rob Webster as an example, just because I, I've talked to him on the podcast and he's explained this. One of his priorities is to support people with uh, disabilities, to move them up the queue. Could a system decide the same thing around children? It could do, yes. Yeah. And that that was certainly something I was advocating for right. and, and was getting a sympathetic hearing within South East London. Very interesting. And this it doesn't kind of need link- permission. <laughs> yeah, no, it doesn't need permission. That's really interesting. And, um, you know, it, it will be interesting to reflect on just how much of that freedom is made use of and, you know, evidence based and kind of what how that plays out. And it does link into what I want to talk about next, which is NHS leadership. So this is to do with what what decisions are made at the centre, what decisions are devolved. What's your view on the current state of that balance, if you like? Well, we live in interesting times, don't we? Um, People can see you laughing there. You're laughing quietly to yourself there. Just, yeah. Um, there's that Michael Barber quote, you know, Michael Barber of the yes, Prime Minister's Delivery Unit. It goes something like, you can mandate for adequacy, but you can't mandate for excellence. Brilliance has to be unleashed. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, so I, I mean, I'm someone who's always believed that change happens more effectively when the centre of gravity is close to the point of, of the citizen, the customer, the, the people delivering the service designed for local context. And everything yeah. I learned in my 10 years at Evelina London just reinforced that for me. Um, and whilst holding essentially can sort of often seem like the rational and efficient or even expedient thing to do, I actually think the number of things that really need to be held centrally 
whether within the sort of any sort of system is pretty limited. I mean, I tech, technology is changing so much and I, I'd be inclined to limit what's held at the centre to sort of making sure we have really excellent data infrastructure, interoperable health and personal digital health and personal records, minimum standard setting, um, general market stewardship. And then, of course, you know, as I said before, ability to intervene, prevent or deal with failure, Um, which which doesn't mean that that local is the right level to do everything up. But central certainly isn't. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, so just thinking now, so we thought about central government, central NHS decision making systems, individual organizations. Um, just wonder what the next step is. So, um, my wife and I are watching a BBC program at the minute called Best Interests. I don't know if you, if you've seen it. I, so I keep meaning to sit down and watch it. It's, it's heartbreaking. So yeah. for people who haven't, who haven't seen it it's about the parents of of a very ill child and essentially um and i'm not an expert so i'm going to summarize in my own understanding of it the hospital are advising that in the best interests of the child they should cease treatment essentially and the parents are in conflict with each other about it so there is there is a court case and obviously the the hospital is being challenged on this and I just wonder in in an environment so my my wife and I were talking to each other and we were just looking at each other because for us it seemed that everyone was trying to do what was best as Mm. they through the lens that they were viewing it and we were thinking who would be who would put themselves in the position of those doctors if that is a potential outcome and it was really we found it quite upsetting actually and I'm just wondering in, in a in a complex environment like that how do you create an environment where people feel empowered when something like that happens? The the instinct must be to grab control and put risk constraints around everything. It's 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 a very big challenge. So so I think if you work in paediatric intensive care, this is these are the paths that you navigate as part of your job, and yeah. actually. One's job as a leader there is to support the staff. Yeah. It, I I think I mean let's not go into some no. of the well-known cases, but but the impact on staff who who really care about these families and yeah. these children who have spent weeks, months, sometimes years caring for that child on um, you know one to one at the bedside. To sometimes get to the point where you're actually physically afraid about, you know, well, what if my name gets into the public domain and, you know, when I walk out of the hospital, will people yeah. target me or my family? I mean, that's that's where some staff have been over the last few years because of the way the media um, yeah. and, and other agencies can engage in in these sorts of environments. I um, uh, it is all about. I have confidence that my staff are doing the right thing, and have are doing the soul searching and are are redoing that soul searching at every step of the yeah. path and taking all sorts of external views talking about it with themselves and others and and then your job as the manager is how do you how do you support them yeah. and make sure they're all right and how do you recognize that that if the decision is that that a child's life should end recognize that that for those staff that too is traumatic yeah um, you know they they come to work as parents and as um, grandparents, and um, yeah. that's a child. I really appreciate you taking time to explain that, actually, and that certainly helped me, and I can just feel how much you feel this, and 
want to support the staff team and the way you've explained the thought process and the role of the hospital and everything I think is is very clear to me so I really appreciate that and this this next question actually links so you're you're dealing with all that how do you find any time for reflection and thinking as the as the chief executive of of an NHS hospital yeah well you regularly fail don't you and I think that's the norm um and I knew that at the time, but actually since moving to a portfolio career, it really has struck me about the sort of counterproductiveness of being overly busy, dangerously little time I had for reflection and thinking, let alone from for having a bit of a wander around in other bits of the outside world to try and work out how that ticks and um, what's transferable. Um, yeah, I I think if one had more time to do that, you would do a better job. And I think also working in portfolios also reminding me how to do one thing at a time, mm-hmm. um, rather than try to be this heroic manager that's struggling multiple things. And I should say I was extremely lucky. I had a great team in Everly London who, I mean, they they recognised that often the most useful thing I could do as a member of that team was to rock back in my chair and sort of look out of the window and um and think and and then help them find the moments in which you know sitting one-to-one they could think because i'm an introvert so um there's an important place for collective reflection and learning but for an introvert that's just giving you more inputs that you've got to go away and process and um and again i think i had the advantage of being a strategy director also probably helped because it protects a little against that sort of need for the regular sort of episode of casualty uh, rush of adrenaline um that that you achieve by declaring a crisis and shoving the imaginary blue flashing light on your head and (laughs) rushing into action to get in the way of those of your team what they're doing and are handling it quite showing showing leadership in verticomas on the ground and yes when they really wish you wouldn't um i I imagine no one's going to be surprised to hear me have a little bit of a rant about the amount of time that senior leaders spend sitting in meetings particularly with the advent of of online meetings it's it's truly horrible and you get this toxic mix of fomo and then that that sort of again the sort of myth of the heroic multitasking manager who can simultaneously contribute to sort of constructively to a meeting and do their emails and write a paper and eat their lunch um and i just think that's a shocking waste of time and of taxpayers money and and doesn't work so you know i like everyone else used to call my diary regularly um had a great team if i delegated things to them as development opportunities um that was good for them and it was probably good for the content of the meetings that they were attending because they were bringing yeah. insights from close to the front line um, yeah. and also and, and 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 also a lot more of their probably full attention to that thing that yeah. has been delegated to them you know? yeah and yeah. no i i think you're absolutely right there's two really key things that you've said there that i agree with extremely strongly one is leaders need to find time to think and reflect or you can't do your job your job you know, at the uh, as the chief executive of an organisation, your job is not just to manage the day to day. There's plenty of people who can do that. Your job is to is to look around the corner and see what's coming and kind of help help the organisation position itself for a year from now, three years from now, not just getting through today. And in public services, it, it's really difficult to do that. And I I do feel for people like you in the NHS and who've been in the NHS and council chief executives, particularly as we seem to be in a in a perma poly crisis at the minute. And there's just no space, but we have to find it. And the second thing is the whole point about meetings. I couldn't agree more. I'm sure there are in every every public sector chief exec in the country. I'm sure at least a third of their meetings to make a decision don't need a meeting. Yeah. Um, I to share an anecdote. When I started in Evelina, um, one of my stipulations was that I didn't have to go to a whole number of um, corporate set piece meetings for six months because I wanted to immerse myself. 
and don't think eh, there was any detrimental impact on anything or anyone as a result of me doing that. And yeah. I certainly did better as a result. But, you know, I was lucky I had a manager who trusted me yeah. and um, I knew the organisation already. So um, yeah. it's yeah. maybe a bit easier for me to do that. Possibly. We need a new story, don't we? It's, like, it's again, yeah. it's a storytelling thing. What is leadership? You know, well, well actually, it is occasionally appearing to be doing nothing more than staring out of the window. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it would be wonderful if that could be accepted. I would I, I would find that really useful. And I, I would hope people would trust that I was thinking about important work related things. And I'm sure they would. But um, look, as Marianne, as a final question, just reflecting back on your own time, you, you, you've described your career path and it's been really interesting and it feels like you've kind of seized an opportunity when it came up to do something really interesting. So what, what bit of advice would you give to someone working in or in public services who, who wants to, to make an impact in the way that, that you have? So I guess, I mean, I'm still learning myself. I, I land on three things, which I suspect apply beyond public services. Um, so firstly, I think making an impact is, is it's about lots of things, sometimes including timing and luck. Um, but most things, including particularly change, come down to to people and relationships. And yeah. that requires one to listen yeah. um, and listen diligently and widely. And I think my, my second thing is um, I'm a subscriber to the Simon Sinek view that says single most effective way to have an impact as a leader is to create the environment and support which enable your team to succeed. Um, it's not complicated Um, so that's definitely part of my um, set of beliefs and I guess thirdly it's sort of the old adage of if you want to go fast go alone if you want to go far go together yeah did Um, you so you you described yourself as an an introvert mm -hmm. um, and you've talked about the importance of listening did you ever feel under pressure as as a woman and an introvert to put on a show that you were saying lots of things or, and, you know, did you ever feel that you weren't able just to kind of lead in your own way? Was there any pressure there? Yeah. So, so in my early career, maybe, I mean, I'm so old that. (laughs) No, you're not. (laughs) um, The sort of, as a young blonde female, the sorts of kind of, encounters that one could have um yeah were occasionally clearly inclined to intimidate but um i think i'm i'm a sufficiently strong character that that just made me more deterred yeah i really mean just in terms of you know not being seen to make an impact in meetings because you're uh, yes so i um i think that is definitely the case i i think um that sense of feeling that that things are being said for the sake of saying them and the repetition that goes on you know that sort of theater yeah. and and you've got your inner monologue going why are you just repeating that person's point didn't yeah. you say them twice um is a classic introvert in a monologue, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I, I mean, again, you spend 20 years in a senior level in a single organisation. People know you so well and you feel so comfortable that I'm sure there were meetings in which people wished I wouldn't shut I, w- I would just shut up. But um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's back to we've got to find a new way of doing meetings so that they're less sort yeah. of theatrical. As more of an extrovert male, I often have to catch myself on in meetings that I'm doing exactly what you just said, you know, filling space <laughs> with words and inverted commas leadership. You know? um, so, no, I, I, I really appreciate everything you're saying there. Marion, we're out of time, but I just want to say a huge thank you for taking the time to have a conversation. You're welcome. It's been fun. Thanks, Andrew. Oh, there's so much to unpack there and so many things that I could talk about, but I'll have to limit myself to about three, I think. Um, The first 
is the comment about the NHS not being overmanaged. I think this is critically important. So I referenced work done by the reform think tank. So Charlotte Pickles and Seb Reese and other people there have done some excellent work. And it takes a brave think tank these days, I think, to suggest that the NHS needs more managers. And it's pretty clear that it does. More funding is going into it and the productivity is not improving. And managers have skills that clinicians often do not have. So there is definitely something there. And I I also really understood Marion's point about the uh, NHS manager job not being a particularly popular one. Her example was being down the pub and being asked what you do and saying NHS manager. And you just probably could feel that a lot of people are lazily thinking, all right, so our tax money is going to pay your salary instead of extra nurses and doctors. And that's just incredibly unfair. NHS managers do a fantastically important job. Marion also shared some good thinking on the role of NHS place leads or health place leads. Um, This is something that we've been looking at very closely in Mutual Ventures. It's a really interesting role. It is more of a convening role, facilitating role, a leadership role in a soft sense where you have to bring together all of the different local players, actors in an area and have a full appreciation of local assets, all with the ambition of understanding the wider determinants of health and supporting a population to be more healthy. And I think Marion's point that she was making was to take someone out of an organisational role and put them across a system to have a system view rather than just being solely focused on the well-being of a particular organisation is hopefully going to be really useful. And the secret sauce, in a sense, which could make these latest NHS reforms really work. And finally, I just want to appreciate the work that the clinical staff and managers do in children's hospitals in particular. That's what we're talking about today. The way Marion described the impact of having to make really difficult decisions, having cared for a sick child for such a long time in many cases is just as really heartbreaking. And I think we don't always appreciate the human element that sits behind these decisions and the care that goes into it. And um, I just wanted to appreciate that at the end of the podcast, because that had a real impact on me, that part of the conversation today. So that's everything from today's podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And please follow us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to leave a good review, that's really helpful. It will help share this podcast with more people. 